This is Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. Fiction and nonfiction, graphic novels and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. Snow spattered against the windows like thrown sand. His mouth was dry, his eyes like hot marbles, his heart trip-hammering in his chest. Outside there was a hollow booming noise, like a dreadful door being thrown wide. Footfalls. Across the room was a mirror, and deep down in its silver bubble a single word appeared in green fire, and that word was... Red Rum. Hello Books and Nachos listeners, I'm Arnie, your host, and I'm back with another review. Today we're going to be talking about a book that discusses domestic violence, alcoholism, self-deception, racism, and more. And since the book I'm reviewing is The Shining by Stephen King, there will also, of course, be some ghosts, psychic powers, and supernatural evil beings. For any new listeners, a little bit of background. Here at Books and Nachos, I've been going back, reading and reviewing all of the published works of Stephen King. In the archives at booksandnachos.com, you can hear my reviews of King's first two novels, Carrie and Salem's Lot, as well as two short stories from King's Night Shift collection that tie closely into Salem's Lot. I'm doing this in conjunction with reviews of the movies based on Stephen King's work. Over at nowplayingpodcast.com, I, along with nowplaying co-hosts Stuart and Jacob, are watching and reviewing every movie and miniseries even tangentially related to Stephen King, going in order of the source material's publication. This week, Now Playing will be reviewing Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, and next week, the 1997 miniseries based on that same novel. Over at Now Playing Podcast, we provide three different viewpoints on these films. Jacob is the newbie who's never read Stephen King and hasn't seen the majority of films based on his work. Stewart is a longtime horror fan, but a lapsed reader of King's works. And I'm the King fan, the constant reader, as King would say, who's continued to read King books and watch movies based on them from my preteen years through today. I joined the Stephen King Book Club in 1990, and I'm still a member, getting a new release every time it comes out. And they sent me The Shining back in 1990 or 91, and I first read it then. I read it again in 1996 and actually did a college thesis on the book. I read it for the third time for this review, and in preparation of the two reviews we're going to be doing it now playing. See, as the King fan, I wanted to go deeper in the analysis of King's actual works and not just their adaptations on screen. And that's what this series of Books and Nachos is here to provide. A look at the text without relation to the films. Plus, King has written so many works that have never been adapted to the screen, I want to review those as well. So while I'm pacing Books and Nachos with Now Playing so listeners can hear both reviews at once, this review will be totally about the book. If you're interested in The Shining movies, that's what Now Playing Podcast will provide. But with The Shining, I'm sure it's hard for most people to separate the book from Stanley Kubrick's seminal 1980 film. Unless you were one of the ones who read The Shining sometime between its publication in 1977 and when Kubrick's film hit screens, the image of Jack Nicholson, face through the bathroom door, leering, taunting his scared wife with, Here's Johnny! is an indelible image. Kubrick's visuals plus Nicholson's performance are so iconic that they're impossible to escape. And I'll put it up front that while reading this book, I had to work hard to remove the image of that movie's Jack from my mind. Even some of the lines in the book are so easily read with Nicholson's smooth, slow delivery and that 
tone that always implies a hint of sarcasm and danger. Really, I see so much in how Jack is written on the page that I believe King may have mentally cast Nicholson in the role, from the receding hairline to the line delivery to the name Jack. No actor was more suited for a role on the page, at least for the second half of this novel. Maybe I'm being retroactive having seen the movie first, but having Nicholson in the role is certainly on-the-nose casting. But in truth, King's original novel differs from that movie in many significant ways. There are no pages describing a young Danny Torrance riding his big wheel through the hotel. There's no reference to Johnny Carson. Jack Torrance doesn't type reams of pages with all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. And perhaps the biggest difference of all, there's no hedge maze. Kubrick's film and the original book do have many similarities. Some of the dialogue from the movie is taken straight from the book, but the differences are greater and more important than that which remain the same. King was inspired to write The Shining while on a weekend vacation in his new home state of Colorado. King is a native of Maine and really closely associated with the Pine Tree State, mostly because most of his books are set there and he has a large spooky mansion in the state. The connection is so strong between man and state that I never realized King lived elsewhere until researching this novel. King was raised in Maine by his single mother, went to the University of Maine, and then he and his wife Tabitha lived in northern Maine after their graduation. When King's mother became ill in the early 70s, the author, his wife, and children moved to southern Maine to be with her. But when she died in 1973, King started to look for somewhere else to live. Soon after, Carrie was released and Salem's Lot was scheduled to be his second published novel, and King was able to support his family through his writing alone and realized he had no geographical restriction. But the author wanted to move someplace new to feel inspired. Plus, his first two novels were set in Maine, so he actually moved his family to Boulder, Colorado for a time. And it's documented that King went into a deep depression after his mother's death. Even with the fact that he was a successful published author didn't assuage him. Now, with the pressure of needing to write to support his family, King found himself stuck on what to do for his third novel. He had ideas, including one about a young boy with ESP, but none of his plots clicked to the point that he was inspired to write. This frustration led the Kings to take a vacation without their children for a weekend. They drove up the Rocky Mountains to a resort several locals had suggested, the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park, named for founder Freeland Oscar Stanley, co-inventor of the Stanley Steamer Automobile, not the founder of the carpet cleaning service. King and his wife arrived at the Stanley to find the hotel was closing down for the season, not because of snow, but the hotel had no heater. All the guests were leaving, but the Kings still wanted to stay the night. The hotel said they could do so, if they could pay cash, as the hotel had even shut down their credit card readers. King had the money in his wallet, so they were given room 217. That night, Stephen and Tabitha dined in a nearly empty banquet hall with an orchestra playing just for them. Tabitha went to bed, and King stayed downstairs drinking heavily. But then in his drunken haze, he got lost in the long, empty corridors of the hotel. He started to think that an abandoned hotel would be the perfect setting for a scary novel. Add to that the room King was given... And remember, they could have had almost any room in the hotel, but they were put in room 217, a room that was rumored to be haunted since the 1950s. Early in the Stanley's history, there was a natural gas explosion, and the maid in room 217 was injured. Not killed, but injured. That maid died in the 50s, leading to stories of spectral visions and items found moved when guests returned to their suite. Though, 
If any of you constant listeners are also ghost seekers, room 418 is supposedly the most haunted room with guests hearing the voices of children. King heard some of these stories and found the inspiration he needed to write his third published novel, taking the idea of a haunted hotel and combining it with the idea he had of a young boy with ESP, the plot was born. Originally, King envisioned the book as being called Darkshine, then just The Shine, before finally setting on the now-iconic name The Shining, a name inspired by John Lennon's instant karma and we all shine on. While King's story is very much based on his experience staying at the Stanley, he's quick to clarify in an author's note at the beginning of the novel, quote, some of the most beautiful resort hotels in the world are located in Colorado, but the hotel in these pages is based on none of them. The overlook and the people associated with it exist wholly within the author's imagination. While this note may be for legal purposes as much as anything, there's no doubt the look and layout of the Stanley Hotel was the basis for King's fictional Overlook Hotel, to the point that when King produced the 1997 miniseries adaptation of The Shining, it was wholly shot at the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park. The Shining tells the story of the Torrance family over the span of four months in the late 1970s. In King's previous two novels, Carrie and Salem's Lot, there was a focus on broken families, widowers, children with dead parents. Most notably, Carrie, like King himself, was raised without a father. But The Shining doesn't focus on a broken family. Instead, it's the tale of familial breaking. Father Jack Torrance is more than down on his luck, he's on his very last chance. Not long ago, Jack was an English teacher and debate coach at the Stovington Preparatory Academy in Vermont, and at night, he worked tirelessly as an author. But Jack's penchant for alcohol undermined his accomplishments. He alienated friends at work, he even missed a fair number of classes due to his hangovers, and once, in a drunken rage, Jack broke the arm of his three-year-old son, Danny. This abusive attitude caused Jack's wife, Wendy, to plan on taking her son and leave her husband. The only one who could match Jack drink for drink was Al Shockley, a trust fund baby whose inheritance included a seat on the Stovington Board of Directors. One night, drinking heavily, Al and Jack were driving drunk and they hit a bicycle at high speeds. A search revealed no rider, but both men realized that nothing but luck separated them from being guilty of vehicular homicide. Though Al was behind the wheel, Jack took it equally as hard and the two men gave up drinking cold turkey. For two years, Jack was on the straight and narrow. He and Al supported each other, and Jack's commitment to sobriety saved his marriage. And though Danny's arm was fixed, some of the emotional wounds Jack had inflicted were still slow to heal. He resumed writing, and his job started going well, until what Jack thinks of as the George Hatfield incident. Hatfield had been a student at Stovington, the son of a rich family and star on Jack's debate squad. But when nervous, George developed a stutter, so Jack cut him from the team. In revenge, George slashed Torrance's tires, and Jack caught him red-handed and beat the boy mercilessly. Even without support, Jack's job was unsalvageable. He couldn't get work again as a teacher, and his writing wasn't enough to support his wife and son. And this is where the novel begins. Al was not only on the board of directors at the Academy, he was also a majority owner and on the board of the Overlook Hotel in Colorado. With this position, Al was able to get Jack one final job as the winter caretaker for the hotel. The Overlook was located high in the Rocky Mountains, 40 miles outside of the fictional town of Sidewinder, Colorado, somewhere near Boulder. The hotel was only open from May 15th till September 30th each year. From October to May, the hotel was closed due to the inclement weather. Snow fell heavily on the Overlook, and the roads to the hotel were so steep that they went unplowed and untravelable. 
The Overlook had been a money pit since opening in 1909, always operating in the red. Part of this was due to the loss of income in these winter months, but during this frozen season, the elements would take hold and damage the hotel. Pipes would freeze, windows would break, and each spring, costly repairs would have to be made. New manager Stuart Ullman was the first to turn the hotel around by hiring a winter caretaker for the hotel. This person would run the boiler to prevent freezing, as well as perform repairs throughout the winter. It's a menial job, but it would support the Torrances for the season. More, Jack looked at it as a path to salvation. He'd have ample time to return to his writing. He hoped that having a new play completed, and maybe even published, would help convince the Stovington board to rehire him. Windy is game as well, looking at the trip as sort of a family honeymoon, a chance for sober Jack to finish reconnecting with both wife and son. But son Danny, now five years old, is terrified of the trip due to psychic visions he has that foretell his father going insane and trying to murder both he and his mother. Danny knows his visions aren't always right, and from glimpses into his parents' thoughts, he realizes Jack needs this job to work out. So Danny keeps quiet and hopes his foresight can prevent the danger. Upon arriving at the hotel on September 30th, Danny meets hotel chef Dick Halloran, marking Danny's first encounter with another psychic. Dick calls their mental powers The Shining, and says Danny has the most powerful shine he's ever met. This power may aid Danny in life, but at the Overlook, that power could prove the boy's undoing, for the hotel is filled with unhappy spirits. From the old woman who killed herself in the bathtub, to mobsters who performed a hit in the presidential suite, to a previous caretaker who murdered his wife and two daughters in the winter of 1970, these spirits and many others still occupy the hotel. They're invisible to most. But for those who shine, the ghosts appear. Dick thinks these spirits are harmless. They can appear and look scary, but can't actually interact with the real world. But Danny's psychic power makes the demons in the hotel stronger than ever, and soon, the Overlook gets its mental hooks in Jack, making the man obsessed with the Overlook. He abandons his play in favor of poring over a scrapbook of the hotel's dirty secrets, the mob ties, the murders. Jack envisions writing a tell-all book, despite the fact that it will forever burn all bridges with Al, Jack's only remaining friend. Jack begins to revert to habits he had in his drinking days, wiping his lips until they bleed, chewing Excedrin, and having a short temper with wife and son. As the snow builds outdoors and the Torrance family is cut off from civilization, the ghosts grow stronger. The topiary hedge animals start to come to life to attack the family. One ghost tries to strangle Danny, leaving bruises around his neck that have no worldly explanation, causing Windy to again think Jack has hurt their son. The tension escalates, the family structure breaks down, and the ghosts give Jack what he desperately desires, another drink. The hotel is possessed by an evil force, capital F, and that force enjoys the additional power it gains from Danny's abilities. If it can make Jack kill Danny in the hotel, then it will forever have that power. Can Danny's psychic abilities save the Torrance family if Jack doesn't have the will to fight off the demons? As the old Time Life ads used to say, read the book. For I do keep these reviews as spoiler-free as possible. But from that summary, anyone who knows Kubrick's film should notice that while some basics are the same, there are also changes which modify the story to such a degree that King has been outspoken for over 30 years about how Kubrick failed to tell the human story the author saw as the core of The Shining. I can understand why King's possessive of this novel. The Shining is his third published book, and perhaps more importantly, the first published after the author became a household name with the cinematic adaptation of Carrie. 
that De Palma film put a huge spotlight on King, propelling his previous two published novels, Carrie and Salem's Lot, to the paperback bestseller list. The Shining was King's first hardcover bestseller, and while the book may have excelled on its own merits, there's no doubt King's newfound fame gave this book a good head start. No matter the cause, The Shining cemented King as a horror writer. To this day, The Shining is one of the first books people think of when discussing Stephen King. The author would later comment that he would often feel cast forever as, quote, the author of The Shining, unquote. Both a blessing and a curse to the prolific author. A blessing in that he continued to write, sell, and be widely read from the reputation he gained from this novel. A curse in that he always felt somewhat in the shadow of the Overlook Hotel. While I think that alone would be reason for King to be protective of The Shining, there is more. Despite often casting writers and teachers in the lead roles of his stories, King denies that he's writing himself. But The Shining is an exception. King has stated that to this day, his portrayal of teacher and writer Jack Torrance is the most autobiographical of his characters. Before the publication of Carrie and Salem's Lot, when King was able to quit his day job and become a full-time writer, King was a high school English teacher struggling to make ends meet. He and Tabitha had so little money, they had to cancel their telephone, a plot device used here in The Shining. They found out Carrie was published by Telegram. To help cover the bills, King would work nights in a laundromat. They lived in a trailer with first one, then two children, and it's hard to imagine today with King's name so entrenched in pop culture, but back then, King thought he may work as an English teacher for the rest of his life. He would steal what time he could to write, with a typewriter on his lap, and it was that determination that proved King's salvation. It was in a cramped room in that trailer, hunched over the typewriter on his lap, that King wrote both Carrie and Salem's Lot. King's obsession with writing, something he'd had his entire life, no doubt colors his fictional teachers and writers, Jack Torrance included. However, with Jack, it goes deeper. Before achieving success, King received a seemingly endless chain of rejection letters from publishers. In the throes of despair, King wasn't always writing. He was also drinking heavily. He would later recount how he would get his paycheck, cash it at the bar, and before he knew it, he'd drunk half the money his family needed for bills. More, he was a new father, a job King was wholly unprepared for. The author's own father walked out when Stephen was still a very young boy, so now a father himself, King had no expectation for what fatherhood would be. With all the pressures on him, plus the drinking, the author found himself taking out his anger on his children. King would later say, quote, I wanted to grab them and hit them. Even though I didn't do it, I felt guilty because of my brutal impulses. I wasn't prepared for the realities of fatherhood. With the depression that came with his mother's passing, King continued to drink heavily. He described his own marriage as touch and go during this period, and said he found himself starting to feel ambivalent towards his family in general. But King has an interesting personality quirk. He believes that if he writes about something bad, then it'll never happen to him. He views writing as cathartic. He's a man plagued with phobias and fears. He has fear of the dark, fear of flying, and in 1973, he had a fear of giving in to his drunken impulse to hurt his children. So he decided to write a book specifically about an alcoholic father trying to kill his own son. This isn't a new concept for King. In Carrie, the teenage telekinetic was slain by her abusive religious fanatic of a mother. Salem's Lot had physically and emotionally abusive parents as well, and future King tales will also revisit this concept. But the epitome of King writing parents trying to murder their own children will always be The Shining. 
It was the genesis for the book. As his own way of saving his children and himself, King created Jack Torrance, a man who loved his wife and son in moments of sobriety, but when drunk found them, at best, annoying, and at worst, despicable nuisances. As I mentioned, I read this book previously. The first time I was a teenager, the second I was in my early 20s, but I'd seen the Kubrick film when I was only 9, a very impressionable age. As such, the first two times reading this book, I read it almost as if it was a novelization of Kubrick's film. So in my memory, the main character of the story was always Danny. And make no mistake, he is the protagonist of this story, the one who's actively trying to save his family, from the early pages of the book through to the climax. But this time, I had an interesting reading experience. I realized the main character is truly Jack. But the first chapter is entirely devoted to Jack, and throughout the novel, it's Jack who has the greatest character arc and goes through the most change. Danny is a good little kid. He starts a good little kid, and he ends a good little kid. Jack, though. Jack is multi-layered. He starts off repressed, and perhaps even a bit inactive, and he ends up fully realized. What that means is very open to reader interpretation, but be it that I've grown older or that I'm finally reading what King wanted me to read, to me this book is the story of Jack Torrance, father and alcoholic. King writes The Shining in a strong, character-driven third-person point of view. Every section is from the point of view of one of the characters, and Jack is often that focus character. But at other times, the point of view is that of Wendy, of Danny, and of Dick, and as such, we get to see Jack both as he sees himself and as others see him, and that's two very different points of view. In the beginning of the novel, told from Jack's view, he seems like a nice guy. He certainly thinks of himself that way. In his own mind, quote, there wasn't a nicer guy in the whole state of Vermont. When he was in control, that is. All of his previous problems, such as breaking his son's arm in a fit of rage and staying out nights neglecting his wife, the rage fits, those were when he was under the influence of the alcohol. He'd stopped drinking now and taken charge in that regard. But through the writing, we see the cracks in Jack's facade. Jack is a conflicted person. He wants desperately to be the nicest guy in Vermont, and he blames the alcohol for his problems. But that's not entirely true. He was dead sober when he found George Hatfield slashing his tires. More, George had good reason for exacting such revenge on Jack. George may have been a stutterer, but when he was finally dropped from the debate team, Jack had sabotaged the boy. During a practice debate, Jack set the timer ahead on George, setting the boy up to fail. Through the prose, King shows us Jack's view on this, and Jack lies to himself. He tells himself he didn't set the timer ahead. He would have never set the timer ahead. He's the nicest guy in Vermont. But slowly the story changes, and Jack admits he did set the timer ahead, but it was for George's own good to prevent the boy another minute of embarrassment. But despite Jack's self-deception, the truth comes through in George's own words. Jack was jealous of George. The boy was young, handsome, and rich. He had no problem with women, and he was athletic. Jack, on the other hand, is getting older, theoretically settled down with a wife and child. George calls Jack out, saying the teacher is jealous of the student, and despite Jack's internal denials, to quote Shakespeare, the man doth protest too much, methinks. It doesn't take long for the novel to show us that Jack is two-faced, outwardly the nice guy, but inside he's hateful and venomous. In chapter one, during his formality of a job interview, Jack smiles at hotel manager Ullman. He nods contritely, he's polite, but inwardly he has a burning hatred for the, quote, fat, officious little prick. Jack is dead sober. He's run out of last chances. 
and he was given this job not because he deserves it, but as a favor from a wealthy friend. But yet Jack can't help but hate this short, balding man who now holds power over him. Ullman drops a lot of hotel history on Jack. History Jack will come to obsess on. But in this moment he can't focus on it, only his hatred for Ullman. The only time Jack truly engages in the conversation is when Ullman tells Jack specifically why the manager thinks the former teacher is wrong for the job. And it's not because he was a drunk, and it's not because he was violent, it's because he has a family. In 1970, a caretaker named Delbert Grady went insane. Though the Overlook is left with no liquor over the winter, Delbert found a way to get drunk. He chopped up his daughters with an axe before killing his wife with a shotgun, and then he was found dead, presumably from a fall down the stairs. Ullman blames cabin fever, the animosity that comes from close proximity, on Grady's mental break, and has since hired only young, unattached men to stay alone at the Overlook. The Torrances will be the first family to care for the Overlook since Grady, as ordered by Al despite Ullman's objections. But Jack's ego immediately discounts this. He correctly guesses Grady was a high school dropout, and then hypothesizes the uneducated wood grow board without the distractions of television. As Jack is a man of words, he thinks his penchant for reading and writing will keep his family safe and sane. In any situation, Jack's first instinct is to believe he is superior to those around him. And when, in the cases of George Hatfield or Ullman, Jack feels inferior or forced into supplication, Jack's instant response is a deep burning hatred, even if he can mask it behind a friendly everyman smile. Even his best friend Al, the man who stands between Jack's family and a breadline, isn't spared. That Al is still on the board at Stovington and living on the money that he was left, not money he earned, is a point of contention for Jack. The two men drank equally hard, so Jack feels it's unfair that he has no job while Al lives well, never taking into account that Al didn't beat the living shit out of a student. Dostoevsky wrote, The man who lies to himself and listens to his own lie comes to a point that he cannot distinguish the truth within him or around him, and so loses all respect for himself and for others, and having no respect, he ceases to love. That quote seems the inspiration for Jack, for even he cannot tell his own self-deception from reality, and the more Jack falls into himself, the less attached he feels to his wife and son. All of this, no doubt, makes Jack sound like the world's biggest asshole, a terrible father and lousy husband. But this is where King truly shines, pardon the pun. In this reading of The Shining, with the viewpoint of a married man approaching 40, I realized something I'd never noticed before in this novel. Jack is sympathetic because he tries. He may lie to himself and think he's the nicest guy in Vermont when, deep down, Jack is a rageaholic with or without the liquor, but Jack is not lying when he wants to be a good husband and a good father. I truly believe that in this novel, Jack loves Wendy and Danny, but his self-centered nature mixed with his short temper makes him incapable of living up to the responsibilities and selflessness that's required for one to love others. Usually my question would be, which Jack is the real Jack? The one who tries to be a good father and husband, or the one who's unleashed when drunk and enraged? But the truth is, both of them are the real Jack. He's a conflicted man, and this instantly makes him the single most interesting and real character King has put on page. I've read a lot of King fiction. Not just the items I've reviewed here so far in Books and Nachos, but dozens of his novels and stories that have come after. I can't think of a single character in all of those prose that is as well-drawn as Jack Torrance. Maybe as I revisit King's work with a more critical eye, I'll find others that come close, but no character in King's bibliography can exceed Jack Torrance for being a true examination of the human condition. And the reason for this is simple. Through Jack, King is writing himself. 
Jack Torrance is King's catharsis. The author has said in interviews he was unaware when writing how much of himself he was putting in Jack. But truthfully, King is standing before us naked, showing us his own deep character flaws. He is examining his own darkest impulses. King's admitted to having violent thoughts about his wife and son. Does that make him a bad man? Some may say yes, unequivocally. But King never acted on these impulses. He wrote Jack, a man who did act on these impulses, as a ritualistic, superstitious way to ensure he'd never actually hurt his own family. But the stories are only a few degrees off of reality. In the book, Jack broke Danny's arm when he came home to find Danny standing over his writing. The three-year-old boy had poured a beer all over Jack's work just to watch the foamy liquid fizz. Jack's reaction was angry and immediate. He didn't mean to break Danny's arm, but he did mean to grab the boy and spank him. In his drunk state, Jack pulled too hard and broke his son's arm. That is fiction. But in the real world, King's told how he once found his son Joe playing around with his writing notes, and King felt like killing the boy. King's also said of his family, quote, On the one hand, I wanted nothing more for my family than to provide for them and protect them. But at the same time, unprepared as I was for the rigors of fatherhood, I was experiencing a range of nasty emotions from resentment to anger to occasional outright hate, even surges of mental violence that, thank God, I was able to suppress, end quote. As I mentioned, King's own drinking was also a problem in these early days before Carrie was published. King has said, quote, I don't know what would have happened to my marriage and my sanity if it hadn't been for the totally unexpected news in 1973 that Doubleday had accepted Carrie, unquote. Jack Torrance is King's explanation of that what-if scenario. It's clear from interviews and reading The Shining that King blames some of this rage on the liquor. King is an admitted alcoholic and drug addict, though he wouldn't discover drugs until the late 70s. But by the time of writing The Shining, King thought he had caged the beast of alcoholism. He had stopped drinking away the paychecks. He felt he had taken control. No, he hadn't gone to Alcoholics Anonymous. It was the 1970s, and King had never even heard of AA. But King, being a man from Maine, just reduced his drinking to some beers in the evening. To him, that was having his drinking under control, and he did it the old-fashioned way, through willpower. He has Jack be the same way. Jack quit drinking after the car accident he and Al were in. But there was no group therapy, no sponsors, just... Jack and Al leaning on each other in willpower. I find it really interesting, though, that with the benefit of hindsight, it's obvious that King was still an alcoholic, but his newfound wealth had made him a less violent drunk. Remember that when Tabitha went up to bed in the Estes Hotel, King stayed in the hotel bar and got shit-faced. So drunk, he couldn't even find his own hotel room. But even the small steps King had taken towards sobriety enabled him to write so realistically of Jack's desire for drink his fixation on drink, how during stressful times Jack would think how a drink would help him cope, and during quiet times Jack would still find himself fixated on the liquor, how Jack would gaze longingly through the window of a bar, knowing the ruination that awaited if he stepped inside, but how the thirst for liquor would try and seduce him into going in anyway. The author had more than a decade of drink and drugs ahead of him before he'd finally get clean, but when writing The Shining, he thought he was clean. And that self-delusion made him able to write Jack in a way that feels totally authentic. Jack's drunken behavioral tics are also King's. He writes that when drunk, Jack chews dry Excedrin. And that idea is so repulsive to me that in a book full of psychics, ghosts, and demons, I found that to be the most unrealistic act in the story. Yet I later found out King himself was an Excedrin chewer. 
He was called out on it by Playboy when they interviewed him in the early 1980s. By the time of that interview, King was not only a drunk but a cocaine addict and his personal life was heading towards ruin. But that his tics of addiction mirror those of Jack seem to, at least back then, pass unnoticed. Jack even thinks at one point that he doesn't have it in him to undertake another massive writing project like a novel, but perhaps a book of short stories would be Torrance's next writing. And the next book, published under the name Stephen King after The Shining? Night Shift, a collection of short stories. Jack also wrote a story about a man spending so much time in an institution that he doesn't know how to live outside those walls, a theme King would write in The Shawshank Redemption. Jack's writings are King's writings. And by putting so much of himself into Jack, King wrote a fully three-dimensional character. And as such, I had one of the most intriguing reading experiences of my entire life. I found life mirroring art, for there was a moment in the book when the worm turned for Jack, and it turned for me as well. As I mentioned in the plot summary, Jack went to the Overlook with the hope of finishing his play, which told the story of Gary Benson, a bright high school student. Benson's family was rich, but Gary saw that more as a curse than a blessing, and all the boy wants is to stand on his own two feet and succeed in school and get into a good college on his own record, not because his father pulled strings. Standing in Gary's way is Denker, the sadistic headmaster. Jealous of Gary's intellect and wealth, Denker tried to sabotage the boy, and at the end of the play, Denker would beat Benson to death with a fireplace poker. In Jack's original vision, Gary Benson is the story's martyred hero, and Denker the obvious villain. Ironically, Jack didn't realize that with Benson and Denker, the playwright was fictionalizing his own relationship with George Hatfield. And as Denker would beat Benson with a fireplace poker, Torrance beat Hatfield with his bare fists. That Jack saw Benson, who was based on George, as the hero of the play, shows that somewhere inside, Jack knew George was right all along and that Jack had wronged the boy in many ways, possibly out of jealousy and possibly simply because he could. But as the novel goes on and the spirit of the Overlook starts to overtake Jack's thoughts, bolstering his negative impulses and assuaging and rationalizing away the guilt, Jack's view of his play changes. He starts to sympathize more with Denker, and seeing Gary, the former hero, as a sarcastic goody two-shoes. Jack wonders how he ever could have thought the play was good when he'd clearly confused the role of hero and villain. I felt the same way. When I read this book previously, as I mentioned, I always saw Danny, the boy, as the hero, and the drunk, rageaholic Jack, the obvious villain. But now, I see that Jack has a lot of pressures. God help me, I sympathized with this abusive drunk. I heard his rationalizations and his reasons and his excuses, and I felt bad for Jack. More, as King wrote Jack as the worst parts of himself, I saw some of myself in Jack. After all, how easy is it to be working on a play or a podcast and get irrationally angry when interrupted, when your workflow is broken by a seemingly unimportant distraction brought up by someone you live with? Be it wife, child, mother, or dog, I can sympathize with Jack's reactions even if I recognize them as the darker impulses in man. Jack is not an idealized character. He's not a flat hero as Ben Mears was in Salem's Lot. Jack Torrance is a troubled man striving to be a good father. Truthfully, I feel fatherhood is the center of the novel. Take away the ghosts. Take away the ESP powers. Take away the Overlook Hotel. The Shining is really a book about fathers and sons and what it means to be a man in 20th century America. Jack is simply caught in the middle of changing expectations. Lest this be seen as unabashed speculation, I read a 2007 paper entitled The Historical Study of Fatherhood that Ralph LaRosa wrote of traditional American views of fathers and masculinity. In it, 
LaRosa documents what I have observed through both fiction and observation. In post-World War II America, the assumed duty of fathers were to provide for the family. The mothers were the ones responsible for changing diapers, feeding the baby, and playing with the children as part of their homemaker duties. Popular fiction of the time shows masculinity as being hard-edged and strong. Yet, per the American Psychological Association, the traditional role of a male in child-rearing was to discipline, to administer spankings or beatings. Often this was to the child, and sometimes this was to the wife. Today, this is seen as physical abuse, but that's a concept that became popular during the women's liberation movement of the 1970s, when The Shining was published. Before that time, it was simply a man being a man. In the 1950s, attitude of fatherhood changed. Publications of the time, as well as TV shows like Leave it to Beaver and My Three Sons, started to soften the image of the father. The ideal became still a strong man, a leader of the household and the breadwinner, but more involved in a child's life, more loving. This continued to evolve further. As more women entered the workforce, the idea of fatherhood continued to change. By the 1970s, the concept of father was drastically different than in the 40s and 50s. Now fathers were a partner in child-rearing. More, the entire concept of masculinity had changed. The idea of an ideal man switched from one who would slap his wife to correct her to a 70s man who was strong but also sensitive. Your typical Alan Alda type. King may not have read these studies, but The Shining could be seen as a distillation of the evolution of the 20th century father role in a single novel. Jack Torrance was raised in the 1950s and 60s by your typical old-world American father, Mark Torrance. Mark is rarely mentioned by name in the book. Mostly, it's father or daddy in Jack's memory. Given the time period, you may think that Mark would be a father's-knows-best type of man. He even worked as a nurse, a staunchly female position in the 50s. But Mark isn't father's-knows-best. He's father-hits-hardest. Mark was a terrible, abusive husband and father. King writes that Mark, quote, won all his arguments with his children by use of his fists, unquote, and that to Jack, quote, it did not seem strange that his own love should go hand in hand with fear, unquote. Jack's siblings hated their father, but Jack, the youngest, seemed the favorite, and throughout Jack's childhood, he idolized his drunk, fat, mean father. But it was the time when divorce was unthinkable, so Jack's mother stayed with Mark, even after Mark's beatings put her in the hospital. The attack was seemingly unprovoked, but one night during dinner, Mark took his cane and bashed his wife's face in. Seemingly, it could have been anyone at the table, even Jack, who received this beating. But it was the wife. He hit her repeatedly, calling her a goddamn puppy, a whelp, and saying, take your medicine. These are the exact phrases Danny hears his attacker saying in his vision of the future. The exact words Jack used, not only when stalking his own son, but when beating George for slashing his tires. It's said that Jack's love for his father curdled when this happened. But yet, throughout the book, Jack remembers the good times over the beatings, focusing on how the father and son used to feed nuts to birds, and that he, Jack, was Mark's favorite son. In the novel, while re-roofing the Overlook, Jack finds a nest of wasps. The bees sting him, and he uses a bug bomb to kill the insects, while fondly recalling when his father and he burned the nests of the beasts together. He later gives that nest to Danny, telling Wendy how there's nothing to fear. Jack's dad gave him a nest, and now Jack was giving one to his son. But the Overlook won't let this wasp's nest be a touching fatherly gesture. The wasps come back and sting Danny. Even if Jack has the best of intentions, when he does the things his father did, he hurts his wife and son. But Jack's anger and stubbornness, traits he shares with Mark, 
Don't let him see the obvious truth of like father, like son. But not entirely alike. Jack tried to be a good man and a good father. After the beating of his mother, Jack saw the evil nature in his father and tried to not be like him. In college, he protested against the war in Vietnam, taking part in peaceful demonstrations against violence. When Wendy was pregnant, Jack was reading the parenting books of the time by Dr. Spock. When Danny is learning to read, Jack would be right there, not wanting to push the boy too hard. Jack knows the kind of man he wants to be, and it's a good, loving man of the 70s. But be it nature or nurture, Jack had a lot of his father in him, and those are the parts of himself that it's hardest for Jack to suppress when he drinks. The Overlook uses Mark to manipulate Jack. Jack hears his father's voice coming in through the hotel's CB radio. From the grave, Mark tells Jack that Danny should be beaten within an inch of his life with a cane, and Wendy should be killed too. At this point, Jack is still able to resist, though his form of fighting back, destroying the CB radio, leaves them completely isolated at the Overlook. But late in the book, when the hotel has him fully, Jack reflects about his father. Much like Jack saw the other point of view in his play, Jack now sympathizes with Mark, believing that it was wives that drove husbands to drink, be it Jack's mother or Wendy. He was certain his mother had done something Jack couldn't see to deserve her beating. King writes, quote, And now, 20 years later, he could finally appreciate Daddy's wisdom. End quote. King is writing the cycle of abuse here. An abused son becomes an abusive father. The phrases his father used, Take your medicine. Goddamn puppy. Jack bellows in his own rages at George, Wendy, and at Danny. The demons of the Overlook affect Jack like liquor. At first, the odd behavior Jack had when he drank, wiping his lips and the aforementioned munching of headache medicine, come back without Jack ever taking a sip. Soon the hostility Jack felt towards Wendy and the impatience towards Danny returned as well. The hotel released the bottled-up evil without Jack ever having to do so much as take a drink. All his willpower, all his desire to be a good man and not become his father is undone by powers beyond his control. Given this, one could see The Shining as the tragedy of Jack Torrance. Though, I can't help but wonder what would have become of Jack had the hotel not been possessed. Even when he's trying to be good, lovable Jack Torrance, the man was full of self-pity, possessed by a persecution complex. He viewed his failures as things done to him, not done by him. His firing from the academy was the board extracting revenge on him, never mind that he pummeled a student. Danny's broken arm wasn't Jack's fault, it was the alcohol. And being an alcoholic isn't Jack's fault either. He has something broken inside of him, and the pressures of Stovington drove him to drink. At one point, King writes from Wendy's point of view that she gets a glimpse of Jack's true face. Quote, The one he ordinarily kept so well hidden, and it was a face of desperate unhappiness. The face of an animal caught in a snare beyond its ability to decipher and render harmless. End quote. That is Jack in a nutshell. Not just at the Overlook, but his whole life, Jack feels trapped and confused and powerless. Most of all, he feels unhappy. Jack's one achievement is that he stopped drinking. But even that isn't Jack's achievement. Jack wasn't driving the car that hit the bicycle. Al was. The two stopped drinking together, but it seems, start to finish, Jack was always the passenger on that journey. When Jack found that wasp nest on the hotel roof, he thinks, quote, When you unwittingly stuck your hand into the wasp's nest, you hadn't made a covenant with the devil to give up your civilized self with its trappings of love and respect and honor. It just happened to you. Passively, with no say, you ceased to be a creature of the mind and became a creature of the nerve endings. 
from college-educated man to wailing ape in five easy seconds, end quote. Yes, it's an obvious metaphor for Jack stepping into the overlook and what would happen to him, but it's Jack's overall refusing to take responsibility for his actions. Really, Jack is deluded. When stung by the wasps, Jack feels he can graduate from passive to active with the thought, quote, they would pay. They would pay for stinging him. Perhaps this is the overlook saying, quote, you could be stung, but you could also sting back. But it seems this has always been Jack's attitude. King tells us how when Jack was seven, a neighbor caught him playing with matches, and the neighbor spanked Jack. Upset by what had been done to him, that being the spanking, Jack was full of anger, so he went out and threw a rock at a passing car. He took out his anger on whatever was closest, not on the source of his anger. But his father saw Jack throw the rock, so Mark beat Jack more, giving him a black eye. And after this was done to him, Jack went out and kicked a stray dog. From early childhood, when he was not much older than Danny, Jack took no responsibility for his actions and responded to bad things with violence against those weaker than he was. Obviously, this was behavior learned by watching his father drink and beat his family, but nonetheless, this is who Jack is at the core. We're told that throughout high school, Jack used football as a safety valve for his temper. He didn't like the game, but he enjoyed the violence. Yet he took every tackle, every block, as a personal insult and vowed revenge. But despite this, Jack saw himself as, quote, a really nice guy who was just going to have to learn how to cope with his temper someday before it got him in trouble, end quote. Jack may have tried. He may have even put on a good show fooling everyone, even himself, that he was a nice guy. But this childhood tantrum of violence continued. When George slashed his tires, Jack made him pay. When Overlook manager Ullman said he didn't feel Jack would be a good caretaker, Jack felt the same grudge that he felt against the opposing football teams in high school. And all of this is done without the influence of, or at least under minimal influence of, the Overlook Hotel. In his criticism of Kubrick's film The Shining, Stephen King has said that it was his view Jack should start out a normal nice guy who descends into madness at the hotel. I wonder if this is King relating to Jack, the character who reflects King's self most too strongly. Does King see himself as the nicest guy in the room while inside holding up feelings of hatred? He admitted having desires to harm his family, desires never acted upon. Does King think Kubrick should have started Jack off as a nice guy because the author sees himself as a nice guy? Because the truth of the matter is, when this book starts, Jack is already a violent son of a bitch. He just has it more under control than would come. But on the drive to the hotel, Jack is not a nice guy, no matter what King would later say. One line repeated in the book is a chance of unmask, seemingly from a costume ball held at the Overlook 50 years earlier. But I feel that Jack is unmasking. The false face is Jack the nice guy. I think it's very possible that Jack could have ended up trying to kill his family even if they'd never moved to the Overlook Hotel. Or it's also possible that his willpower, which was strong enough to keep him from drinking for two years, could also have been strong enough to keep him acting like the nice guy he desperately wants to be. Or perhaps the nice guy King desperately wants Jack to be. But remember, I said I could relate to Jack, seeing some aspects of my own personality in him. And yet, I find him to be irredeemable. Since King writes Jack as relatable, I've been made to sympathize with a child abuser, a grade-A asshole, and a possible murderer. I'm not only afraid of Jack on behalf of his family, but I see Jack's side, and as such, as the reader, I become as conflicted as Jack. 
King takes me on Jack's journey, and it's disturbing. I would put down The Shining, and the effects of my sympathy for this drunk devil would linger on, making me examine the character, the novel, and myself. When fiction exposes new truths, that is when it transcends genre junk and becomes literature. King has done that with The Shining. But while I'm left with questions, I do believe King still sees Jack as the nicest guy in the room. The argument for both sides can be made, as hopefully I've done here, but Jack has moments of clarity when he acts in ways that could be seen as cries for help. Jack makes an antagonistic phone call to Ullman that would have gotten any other employee fired, and wonders why he did it. Was it his temper, or was it Jack trying to escape before he descended too far into madness? A repeated phrase in the book is, quote, This inhuman place makes human monsters, and that seems to absolve Jack of most guilt. King would even write Jack a bit of redemption in the book and make it far more overt when rewriting the story for the 1990s miniseries. But these, Jack is really a good man, it's the hotel that made him evil, moments, lose their authenticity every time I think of George Hatfield laying bleeding at the hands of a perfectly sober Jack Torrance a thousand miles away from the Overlook Hotel. While my primary question about Jack is if he is, at heart, a good or evil man, I do have another. How does the hotel affect him as it does? The book never gives an answer for that. It's suggested that maybe Jack has The Shining as well. Dick Halloran probes the man and, quote, It wasn't like meeting someone who had The Shine, or someone who definitely did not. Poking at Danny's father had been strange, as if Jack Torrance had something, something that he was hiding, or something he was holding in so deeply submerged in himself that it was impossible to get to, end quote. In the end, Dick tells Danny that Jack doesn't shine, but I'm not so sure. While King wrote Carrie as a telekinetic, pyrokinetic psychic, and would later write of other people with mental powers in books like Firestarter, The Stand, and many more, this book limits its scope of mental powers to shines. And King notes that shining may be genetic, as telekinesis was in Carrie. Dick's grandmother shined, which is how Dick got the name for the power that he told to Danny. Given this, it's likely that someone up Danny's family tree shined. Perhaps it was Mark Torrance, Danny's grandfather. Perhaps that shine gave him a look at something in his wife's thoughts that, in Mark's mind, made her deserve that beating with his cane. Perhaps it's Wendy, Danny's mother, who does have flashes of insight. But Dick says all mothers, quote, shine a little. But at one point in the novel, when Jack starts to really see the ghosts that inhabit the Overlook Hotel, King wrote, quote, Around him, he could hear the Overlook Hotel coming to life. It was hard to say just how he knew, but he guessed it wasn't greatly different from the perceptions Danny had from time to time. Which, to me, makes it most likely that it's Jack who shines, but either from his abuses or due to his drinking or his temper, it's so locked down that even he is unaware of it. That would explain why Jack is able to see the ghosts of the Overlook, talk to them, party with them, drink their liquor. Maybe. Or perhaps the power Danny gives these ghosts allow their manifestation. But these theories beg new questions when coupled with Grady, the caretaker in 1970 who killed his family. It's said by one ghost that Grady's daughters knew the hotel was evil and tried to burn it down. Did those girls shine? Given that psychics are rare in the world, even in this book, it's a great coincidence that both times entire families were left in charge of the Overlook, there was a psychic. 
It's tempting to say that anyone left at the Overlook long enough will be similarly driven insane by the haunting, but many hotel employees there all year never saw any ghosts, and the single men who took care of the Overlook since 1970 came out as sane as they entered. King leaves this portion of the book wonderfully ambiguous, and to that I say, good! We are reading a book about ghosts and spirits and psychics, and a little bit of ambiguity, mysticism, is a good thing in my mind. But while I don't know how the hotel influences Jack, I know why it picks him. He is weak, unhappy, and egotistical. They know Danny is too strong to go after directly, so they put their hooks into Jack. Early during their stay, Jack becomes fixated on the scrapbook, telling of horrors that occurred in the past at the Overlook. While Jack is a compulsive person in general, I have to chalk this particular obsession as the hotel's influence over the man. By the end of the book, Jack wants nothing more than to be promoted to a management position at the Overlook. And this is clearly not the real Jack, but the hotel manipulating him and putting ideas in his head. Ideas such as, kill your son. Yet, it's playing on Jack's sense of entitlement, his desire to feel special as his father made him feel special as the favorite son. Fatherly pride in a boy who excels to heights his father never achieved is an emotion beyond Jack. Jack is jealous. He was jealous of George Hatfield, so he beat him down. Now, he's jealous that the hotel wants Danny. More, Jack is selfish. He is the one who will be management of the hotel, not just a tool to do the bidding of the demons. In one of his psychic insights, Danny sees that Jack wants to be a ghost at the Overlook Hotel so he can live forever. This delusional, self-centered need to be the important one is a big key to Jack's unraveling as the book continues. Even at his lowest point, Jack is willing to give up both Wendy and Danny to give the hotel anything it wants if it just allows Jack to retain his own sanity. Again, putting his own self-preservation above the lives of those he supposedly loves. And he thinks this only 10 pages after vowing to himself that he'd never hurt Danny again. And as The Shining starts to reach the climax, Jack, influenced by the hotel, believes fully in the discipline of Mark Torrance. Jack would beat his wife and son with a mallet, just as Danny envisioned, for, as King writes, quote, He would set Danny an example, so the day might come when Danny was grown, a day when Danny would know what to do better than he himself had known, end quote. Now, I've been talking for a long time about Jack. The man he is, the man he became when drunk, the man he could have been had the Overlook not intervened. I've spoken about Jack more than any other character thus far in my reviews of King's work. Even more than I spoke of Carrie White in a novel entirely about that character. That is the richness King brings to The Shining and his characterization of Jack Torrance. I earlier said Jack is King's most interesting character, and it's for all these reasons I've been given all these insights into his character. Jack Torrance is a real person, an only slightly fictionalized version of Stephen King. In this book, King's showing us the most secret parts of himself, and it creates not only King's best written character, but one of the most realistic fictional characters I've ever read. The best part of King's writing of Jack is that an astute, insightful reader will know in Chapter 2 that the biggest danger is Jack using a mallet to kill his family. Even the densest reader will have the point driven home by Chapter 4. This book engrosses you because you know the foretold conclusion of this family dynamic, but as the pages turn, we watch it unfold. Jack is a ticking time bomb, and each page is filled with foreshadowed doom. King did this with both Carrie and Salem's Lot, telling the stories in flashbacks so we knew what would come. 
Here though, King has Danny's ESP tell us what is to come, and that works so much better because it gives us a false hope that the disaster can be averted. The joy of this book is knowing that Jack is going to try and kill his wife and son, but King making characters that we like enough to want to see them escape the horrors we know are coming. King is writing Jack's descent into madness in a way that we know it's unavoidable, but we still want it to stop just the same. With such a high bar set by Jack, the other characters do pale in comparison. None are as complex, none is conflicted. I think that's partially why in this reading I've found myself feeling sympathetic for Jack, as he feels like a real human being, and the rest of the book is filled with far less three-dimensional presentations. Jack's son Danny gets a bit more of a pass due to his age. He's only five years old. Danny is the third generation of this abusive father-son cycle, and while he is a boy, he has the sensibilities of that 70s man I described. He's sensitive to the needs of those around him. He suppresses his fear of going to the Overlook, because he knows this is something his parents need. The glimpses he gets into their thoughts tell him they were very close to divorce, and being the kind and caring boy he is, he tries to be their savior, using his foresight to avoid the red rum he knows could be coming. But Danny doesn't know what red rum means. He sees it in a vision, and in that vision, it's a word reflected in a mirror. I think it's common knowledge now that red rum is murder spelled backwards, but Danny doesn't realize that, and the little boy is obsessed with learning to read so he can find the meaning of red rum. King does sort of cheat with that. All the other signs of danger Danny sees are normal. Only murder is in the mirror. But with that cheat, King created the most famous backwards word of all time. I've always seen Danny as the epitome of the 1970s sensitive man. Two generations removed from the casual abuse of Mark Torrance, I imagine Danny would grow up without the failings of his father. Jack turned into Mark, but I never envisioned Danny turning into Jack. The boy is just too selfless. While seven-year-old Jack threw rocks at cars and kicked puppies, Danny's concerns are only making his parents happy even if it means his own pain. Jack Torrance sees himself as the nicest guy in the room, but Danny really is the nicest. Normally, I'd consider such a goody-goody characterization a negative in a book. Such characters do tend to be flat and uninteresting, and when those characters are young children, you can add cloying and nauseatingly precocious to those descriptions. And coming from King, who wrote a bit too heroic and noble a boy in Salem's Lot's Mark Petrie, I really would have low expectations for young Danny Torrance. Yet despite the long odds, Danny is a likable and complex character, nowhere near as complex as Jack, but more than any other character in the book, and it's easy to root for Danny throughout this novel. As I mentioned previously, I saw The Shining movie when I was nine, just a couple years older than the boy in the film. As such, I projected myself into that movie. My father's never come after me with an axe, or a rogue mallet, but he was a large, dominating, fearsome presence in my childhood home and that fear translated very well to empathize with Danny haunted by his crazy, angry dad. But it's too easy for one child, with a simple view of the world and a flimsy grasp on fiction, to relate to another child. Yet that empathy remained with me when I read the novel in my early adult years. This time, though, I'm very far from grade school, and Danny in the book is a five-year-old boy. Any pre-existing assumed empathy I had for the child psychic was gone. Yet... I still found myself liking Danny. Part of the reason King was able to pull this off is by having Danny act much older than his age. I see that there was a delicate balancing act with Danny. If the character was too old, then his psychic visions would be too clear to him. His ability to communicate and to stand up for himself would provide him too much strength. 
But if the boy is too young, speaking in phonetic child talk, such a portrayal would be grating, and in a lesser novel, a cynical reader may end up rooting for Jack to take out the little rascal wannabe. So to craft the perfect balance of innocent and substantial with insightful and smart, Danny's age becomes a bit flexible. He's still learning to read, just into the early Dick and Jane books. This illiteracy makes it so Danny is perplexed by Red Rum and pushes himself to learn to read so he can find out what Red Rum is and how to avoid it. But Danny's psychic insights give him an empathy beyond his years. He instinctively can feel the emotions of those around him and reacts accordingly in most situations. The way Danny acts in the book would often be at a maturity level I'd attribute to children 10 years old, or at least 8, and that helps avoid the too-cute-to-stomach portrayals found in other books and movies. King also has a way to write this boy that shows an awareness of the mindset of children. When King writes lines in Danny's point of view, such as the boy, quote, offered his arm up for sacrifice when having blood drawn, it shows the limited scope of childhood. I would never say Danny is an authentically written five-year-old, but I'd say that to me, it was realistic. Some readers may get annoyed by Danny's nomenclature. He doesn't know what divorce is, so when it comes up, it's spelled out D-I-V-O-R-C-E. He doesn't understand alcohol, so Jack's drinking is just called the bad thing. But these are few and far between, and only once when Danny sees figurines in a 69 position and thinks they're, quote, kissing peepees, did I grow tired of the baby talk. Beyond just the way he's written, though, Danny is a child in a fractured family. His father broke his arm in a rage. His mother would take the boy and leave if she had anywhere to go. The family is running out of money, out of options, and out of time. But of the three, Danny is the one powerless to change their fate. Danny can't leave on his own. He can't get a job to support them. He can't even read. But yet, more than either of his parents, Danny is working the hardest to keep them afloat emotionally. He reads in his father's head how he thinks about the bad thing, or how his mother thinks of D-I-V-O-R-C-E, and he does everything he can to keep both from happening. He even sees inside Jack's head things Wendy could never realize, such as Jack's suicidal thoughts if Wendy were to leave him, or the utter fear Jack suffered when he thought Al and he killed someone on the bicycle. Danny knows all of this, but he keeps it to himself, solely taking on the burden of Torrance family cohesion. He's a five-year-old Atlas, holding up the world only he knows. And in the way it's written, it comes off as sad, not sappy. Danny also worries heavily about insanity. It's a thread that throws throughout the book, and another cutesy catchphrase Danny uses without understanding, losing your marbles. Danny fears insanity early on. He fears himself going insane, and he fears his father losing his mind, as happened to one of Danny's playmates. While not all as well developed as the alcoholism and divorce fears, this does make one of Danny's worst fears come true, his father going insane. But like many sons, Danny is a small reflection of his father. In addition to Danny worrying about Jack going insane, or himself going insane, they mirror each other in other ways. Jack carries the weight of being an alcoholic, constantly craving a drink he can't have. He also has the pain of how he hurt his family with his drinking. Danny just feels equally pensive. King slyly writes the two Torrance men in similar ways. Careful readers will notice entire scenes featuring the characters that are echoes of each other. It's rarely overt, but yet we see that Danny has his father's mannerisms. When stressed or in thought, Danny will wipe his mouth, an imitation of his father's tick. 
Danny is also compulsive like his father. While Jack sits in the basement poring over the scrapbook of the overlooked secrets, Danny is upstairs, and despite Dick's warnings to stay away from the ghost, and especially away from room 217, Danny must face them and know the secrets. But most of all, Danny has Jack's temper. It's rare that Danny lets it flare. He is two generations removed from the ritual abuse of Mark Torrance, who died long before Danny was born. But when pushed, Danny doesn't always run. Sometimes he attacks. The first time I really noticed this was when the hotel starts to torment Danny, manifesting itself in the form of a fire hose that tries to attack like a snake. Danny, emboldened by Dick's words that the apparitions are harmless, just like, quote, pictures in a book, Danny says, Come on and hurt me, you cheap prick. Can't do it, can you? Huh? You're nothing but a cheap fire hose. Can't do nothing but lie there. Come on, come on! Later in the book, Danny's temper flares again. He sees an antique clock and wants to see it chime, but he was told not to touch the Overlook's decorations. King writes, quote, A sense of injustice and a feeling of angry rebellion suddenly rose in him, and never mind what I'm not supposed to touch. Just never mind. Touched me, hasn't it? Played with me, hasn't it? Danny is also self-deceiving. Just as Jack denied to himself that he set the clock ahead on George Hatfield, Danny denies to himself that he stole the hotel passkey to snoop in the rooms. As a reader who roots for Danny, I found myself torn. This strength, this rebellious nature, could save all their lives. Yet by the same token, it shows a continuation of the cycle of violence. Mark Torrance was a terrible abuser. Jack tried to be good, but failed. I've always believed in my previous readings that Danny escaped the cycle of violence and would grow to be the sensitive 70s man. When I read these passages now, this time, I wonder how much of his father is already in him. The same as Jack doesn't realize he's acting like Mark Torrance, what parts of Jack are just in Danny through genetics or early experiences? As I reach the age my father was when I was born, I find myself laughing like he laughed or acting like he'd act doing physical mannerisms that mirror the man. So seeing this in fiction rang very true. Some part of you will always be like your parents, even if you don't want it to be. And once again, we have like father, like son. Danny is, by default, Jack's favorite son, but the boy idolizes his father. He barely remembers the broken arm and instead thinks of the good times the men have had. And this mirrors very closely Jack's relationship with his own father, where Jack's mother was a non-entity in his memory. She's never even given a name. And despite all the abuses, Jack remembers the good times with his father, Mark lifting him up to play airplane or giving him a dead wasp's nest. This bonding could be due to the fact that Jack is the only male left in Danny's life since his friends were all left behind when the Torrances left Vermont, but it's said that in Wendy's eyes, from birth, Danny was always Jack's son. Maybe it's because Jack shines just a little, and it helps him to connect with his son. But I guess Danny does have one other friend, Tony. Tony is an older boy who Danny describes as at least 11, maybe old enough to drive, who comes to Danny in visions. It's Tony who warns Danny of the dangers at the Overlook Hotel. Tony has shown Danny other things in the past, most of which came true, but some, such as Danny getting a new baby brother, did not. Wendy and Jack write Tony off as an invisible friend for their imaginative young boy. The parents denying Danny's psychic abilities, though Wendy does start to believe more and more as things go on. But when Danny communes with Tony, the younger boy leaves his body in a catatonic state. Again, not wanting his parents to worry, Danny tries to hide these episodes, to only call out to Tony when he won't be discovered. 
but Tony is Danny's guide, an ally early on in the novel. As the demons of the Overlook grow stronger, Danny is eventually cut off from Tony and his visions of the future. Tony exists in the novel as a harbinger of doom to come, but little else. When Danny is in the most peril, Danny is also completely alone. And Danny's shining powers are interestingly written in this novel. As he didn't carry, here King uses parenthetical notation to show the differing trains of thought, some of which may be our point of view character's mind, and some may be intercepted thoughts from others. But even more than with Carrie, Danny's powers are a birthright. He was born with a call on his face, a superstitious sign of ESP abilities, and he can see dead people, read thoughts and emotions from friends and strangers alike, and see the future. But the longer he stays at this hotel, the more these powers are stripped from him and he becomes a helpless little boy. The only power Danny can fully rely on is his psychic communication. He can still read the thoughts of his mother, though he's blocked from his father. And when things start to go terribly wrong, Danny can also reach out across the country to Dick, who's wintering in Florida. Dick is an interesting character in the novel. On the one hand, I think Dick represents an alternate form of masculinity. Danny has seen the bad father, the abusive father, the drunk father. In Dick, Danny gets to see a kindly father figure who educates and understands. Dick is the first man Danny meets who can also shine, and that creates an instant bond between the two. So when Danny calls out to the cook, Dick drops everything to return to Colorado. King is smart. Dick does try to call the police ahead of time, but calling from Florida in the middle of a Colorado snowstorm, Dick is written off as a crank, so he must race against the clock to try to return to save a boy he'd only met once. I think King makes it very overt that Dick is the good father and Jack the bad. Oftentimes, Danny thinks of going on a fishing trip with Jack when the winter is done, and, very minor spoiler, Dick and Danny take that trip. Dick is the first male authority figure to show Danny there is another way to be, and to continue Danny's path being the strong but peaceful man. But there is another part of Dick that is unavoidable. He is black, and as such, he has been accused of being that mystical black stereotype, having the magic powers and all the answers. King's been called out on it many times, and he eventually would say in interviews this portrayal is the result of white guilt. Certainly, the trope is here, be it for conscious or subconscious reasons. But I also think Dick is much more than a stereotype as written, so it pains me to see him labeled as that kind of mystic. The same character could have been white and left the book with no black characters, and I'm not sure that's a better answer. Unfortunately, driving at home are many racial slurs, spoken by the ghost of the hotel and Jack. While these epitaphs are spoken by evil men, it overall puts a focus on Dick's race that is outside of the plot. But still, Dick is a strong character in the book's climax. The final battle must belong to Danny, but Dick does have his moments to shine. As does Danny's mother, Wendy. She's the lone female character in this book about men and the relationships between men. And as such, Wendy often feels external and forgotten. While three people are trapped in the Overlook, we spend much more time exploring from Danny's or Jack's point of view than we ever do from Wendy's. Jack is being seduced by the hotel and partying with those who died there. Danny is prepping for a battle to save his father's soul and all their lives. Meanwhile, Wendy is a mom. She's cooking, she's cleaning, she's having sex with her husband, but she's passive. For most of the book, in fact, Wendy is nothing more than a protective mother who will die to save her son. It's the standard mama bear trope. When Danny is stung by wasps, Wendy demands he be seen by a doctor. When Danny's arm is broken, Wendy wants to protect him from Jack. 
when Jack shakes a catatonic Danny, Wendy again fights to protect her son. And remember, this book came out in 1977. While stay-at-home moms were still very common, my mother was one in the 70s, working women were also coming back. King's wife Tabitha took jobs in the 70s to help make ends meet, yet when Jack loses his job at Stovington, Wendy Torrance does nothing but stand by her man to go wherever he says. I can almost, almost understand Jack's contempt for the woman. What does she want besides to possibly have another child if Jack can get his shit together? With Salem's Lot first, and now The Shining, I can't help but wonder if the friend who once told King he can't write anything but men may have been spot on, for in both King's second and third novels, the women are stereotypes, not people. I wonder when King will change that. I do know most of his main characters are indeed men. Here, despite the racial portion of Dick Halloran, I believe Wendy is actually the most two-dimensional character on these pages. But I do want to state that while Wendy is a disappointing portrayal, she's heads and tails above Susan from Salem's Lot, just nowhere near any of the women from Carrie. King does try to include Wendy on the themes of the book, creating a like-mother-like-daughter scenario. Wendy has a horrible relationship with her emotionally abusive mother. Like Jack and Danny, Wendy was always closer to her father than her mother, which caused jealousy. When Wendy feels that same twinge of jealousy regarding how close Jack and Danny were, Wendy hates that she's thinking like her mother. It's in Wendy's thoughts that King puts the finest point on the parental relationships of the book, quote, she carried part of her mother with her always, for good or bad. Jack uses his wife's relationship with her mother to manipulate Wendy, pushing the two women further apart by reminding Wendy of these grudges. Jack says, quote, She wants to keep beating you. The more times you phone her, the more times you crawl back begging forgiveness, the more she can beat you with your father. It's good for her, Wendy, because she can go on making believe it was your fault. End quote. Be it Wendy's true relationship with her mother, or Jack's manipulation of it, the only reason Wendy stayed with Jack through the drunk years was that moving in with her mother seemed like an even worse option. But even this relationship is not fully explored or exploited in the novel. It's a book by a man about men, so Wendy falls into the protective mother role. I did smile, though, when King turns that on its ear. When, as I previously mentioned, one of the ghosts attacks Danny, leaving bruises on the boy's neck, of course Wendy and Jack think they're the only ones in the hotel, so Wendy instantly blames her husband for the attack. Jack, a bit more aware of the hotel's nature, doesn't reciprocate, but when Danny says, Daddy, it was her, meaning one of the ghosts, it certainly seems implied that Wendy was the culprit. As a reader, I like this tension, and Jack plays with it just a bit, drawing out his wife's torment. But it's short-lived before Jack returns to his scrapbook and his ghost parties and Wendy is back being the mama bear. Even then, Wendy's characterization is inconsistent. With Danny's encounter, she finally insists they leave the hotel, something Jack is unwilling to do, so Jack sabotaged their snowcat, leaving them completely stranded with no radio and no vehicle at the Overlook. And so, shortly after that, resigned to their fate, Wendy and Jack are back to business as usual. How Wendy can go from abject terror with bruises around her son's neck to cooking dinner like nothing happened is beyond me. I'll give King this. Wendy isn't much, but she is a good protector. When she finally, finally becomes convinced that Jack is a danger, she is smart enough to know she and Danny can't hide forever. She'll have to face him. She succeeds in incapacitating her violent husband and locking him in a pantry. 
a solid plan that in any other hotel in the world would have saved all of their lives. How could Wendy account that the hotel was possessed and would open the locked door for its human agent? But after that one victory, Wendy, like Dick, is sidelined so the two stars of the novel and the Overlook itself can take center stage. And make no mistake, the Overlook is a character in this novel just as much as Jack, Danny, Wendy, and Dick are. This is a haunted hotel story, an evolution of the haunted house, I suppose. And the Overlook Hotel is one of literature's most famous scary locales. But to be blunt, I'm not sure the reputation is deserved. The Overlook is haunted by some terrible things, to be sure, but it seems they have a very limited bag of tricks. As mentioned, not everyone sees the terrible things at the Overlook, but those who do see the same things again and again. While some of these terrors do frighten, others leave me pretty cold. During his initial tour of the hotel, Danny sees some horrible things, such as brain matter dripping down the walls of the presidential suite. But during these early experiences, as Halloran says, these are just pictures in a book. They can be gross, but they aren't harmful. When the hotel first starts to intimidate and attack Danny, it does so through a fire hose. Yes, the hose is described as being snake-like, but in the end, it's a hose. It's hard to take too seriously as a threat. Then there's the elevator that goes up and down on its own. Yes, when ghosts are partying in the elevator, the ghosts are scary, but an elevator that moves on its own is a bit less threatening. The other concept that King tries to present is incredibly frightening, but it fails to resonate with me, is the idea that outside the hotel are topiary plants cut into the shape of animals. From the early pages of the book, it's set up that these plants may come to life, and later there are pages where they do start to move and grow aggressive, but they only move when you're not looking at them. Kind of like that ghost in Super Mario Brothers, they advance when you look away. Sure, some of the hedges are cut like lions and a dog, which can be vicious animals when attacking, but these are plants. Plus, one of them is a buffalo and another a bunny. Anytime King tries to sell me that these are frightening bushes, I don't buy it. During the plant's best scene, they're merely adequate. But for most of their, quote, scary, unquote, scenes, they border on the ridiculous. I can certainly see why Kubrick stayed far away from this concept when translating it for the screen. And some of the book's most iconic imagery is also somewhat of a letdown in the text. For example, the woman in room 217 is one of the most well-known ghosts of all time, likely due to the Kubrick film more than the book. The book does give the woman her due in ghostly form, though. Known as Mrs. Massey, the woman is the first specter to harm Danny, putting the bruises on his neck while trying to strangle the boy. That scene is one of the most tense in the novel, and King said he found himself a bit scared when returning to this passage for rewrites. The description of the bloated dead woman in the hotel bathtub is truly grotesque. However, despite being such a powerful embodiment of the Overlook's evil, in human form, Mrs. Massey was just a sad old woman whose younger lover stole her car. Rather than face her husband, Mrs. Massey killed herself in the tub. And that was only in 1975, about one year before the Torrances moved in. So Mrs. Massey was not a source of the hotel's evil, nor was she in life an evil, child-hating woman. She was just pathetic and suicidal. Regarding previous murderous tenants, 1970s caretaker Grady, who murdered his wife and daughters, he is to The Shining what Hubie Marsden was in Salem's Lot, a previous resident who committed murder, then suicide, but is seen as the living dead later. But in this book, Grady is 
strikingly calm as the liaison between the hotel manager, and by that I don't mean Ullman, and Jack. In the end, it's Jack who will be the most frightening weapon of the Overlook, so the other ghosts and anthropomorphized accessories are kept in the background. But these ghosts represent the history of the Overlook Hotel, and as he did with the town of Jerusalem's lot in his novel Salem's Lot, in The Shining, King gives us the full background of this haunted hotel. The Overlook was built in the early 1900s by Robert Townley Watson, but the hotel was a money pit, causing Watson to sell it in 1915. But Watson's grandson still works at the Overlook during the on-season as the maintenance man. Then after World War II, the hotel was purchased by Horace Derwent, Harry to his friends. Derwent is a fictionalized Howard Hughes, a man who made his fortune in aviation and then expanded his fortune to Hollywood as a film producer. But Derwent also has casino holdings in Vegas, and the man may have mob ties. More, for reasons I can't understand, Derwent is bisexual, though he's kind and romantic to his female lovers and harsh and manipulative with the male ones. In reading this book the first two times, I didn't catch that Derwent was bi. It's said that he's... ACDC, a term that I never knew had anything to do with sexuality, and given King's directorial effort Maximum Overdrive and the fact that this was in the 70s, I just kind of associated it with a band. But between the last time I read this book and now, I discovered ACDC was a 70s term for bisexuality, and I do know there is the trope of the crazy evil bisexual, and I suppose that's what King is going for with Derwent but it never entirely plays out and just seems like a very strange character development. In fact, many things involving Derwent in the history of the Overlook don't pan out. While the Overlook changes hands many times, the owners always seem to look back to Derwent through familial or business relations. Is it that Derwent is obsessed with the hotel, or is the hotel calling to the man? Despite Derwent being one of the primary ghosts occupying the Overlook in the novel, not much reason as to why is given. At one point, Jack asks Al if he has any connection to Horace Derwent, but no answer is given. Is the hotel still owned by this crazy bisexual or one of his heirs? Then take Watson, the regular caretaker, who is very homophobic. Is it because he hates Derwent? If so, why? And why is the grandson of the man who built the hotel still working there as a janitor? These are linkages that I feel should be explained. Yes, earlier in this review, I was advocating ambiguity, but that's specifically in relation to ghostly matters. When you have human beings, or ghosts who were once human, interacting strangely with a haunted hotel, I'd have liked more reasoning given. After all, as Dick calls out in the book, quote, I don't know why, but it seems that all the bad things that ever happened here, there's little pieces of those things still laying around, like fingernail clippings or the boogers that somebody nasty just wiped under a chair. I don't know why it should just be here. There's bad goings on in just about every hotel in the world, I guess, and I've worked in a lot of them and had no trouble. Only here. End quote. The Overlook's not just inhabited by ghosts, but there is some mysterious force at the head of it, one that the other ghosts refer to as the manager. It was the manager who left the scrapbook for Jack to find, and the manager who wants Danny dead. It's described that Danny is like a super-powered battery for the evil energies of the hotel, and Danny's death would perhaps empower the manager and his ghosts even further. Who or what the manager is is left ambiguous. It could be Derwent, I'm not certain. Or it could be some other evil elemental force. I know that King was a fan of Lovecraft, 
And at the end, there's some speculation and ambiguity that an evil demonic spirit may be the manager using the ghost for its own purpose. But King asked the question, why the Overlook? And why Watson and Derwin are still connected? And the answer is left to the reader's own analysis, guess, or imagination. But while some of the hotel's parlor tricks fail to scare me, the sheer volume of poltergeist activity accumulates to a frightful level. With the gore on the walls, vengeful spirits of boys who died on the playground and want Danny to play with them forever and ever, mobsters coming from the grave to do another hit, or the dead old woman in room 217, the cumulative effect of the book was enough to get me creeped out. I was never scared while reading the book. I never turned a page frightened of what I'd read on the next page. I doubt there's any book that can do that to me as an adult. But if I'm being honest, I have to say that when I read the book late at night and then walked through my dark, quiet house, I had that moment of anxiousness before turning on the bathroom light and that extra bit of care when opening doors, that brief moment of uncertainty of what might lie on the other side. And to that, once again, I must totally credit the easy writing style of Stephen King. Here, in his third published novel, King has polished his writing style in a way that makes it much more fun to read and tells a more compelling story. For example, in Carrie, Salem's Lot, and The Shining, King uses news articles to fill in backstories of people and places in the book. But here in The Shining, they're used to their best effect, and even the articles feel written by different authors rather than just different from the prose in the novel. More, in all three books, King has a lot of history he brings into the story. In Carrie, it was the history of Carrie and her childhood. In Salem's Lot, it was the Marsden House and the town itself. And here, it's the backstory of the hotel and the Torrance family's strained relationships. And as I mentioned in my review of Salem's Lot, it does seem like a prototype for the story in The Shining. In Salem's Lot, it's the Marsden house where the bad things happened and is thought of as haunted. Here, it's the Overlook Hotel. With the former, King does rely on the same data dump devices he used before. We learn half of what we know about the Overlook from Mr. Ullman giving us a guided tour in the first chapters. Then much more in a series of articles when Jack first finds the scrapbook. The scrapbook portion especially seemed like needless history while reading. The type of work product an author will put in notes to have reference for the hotel, but not actually put in the final book. But with the hotel tour, King does something ingenious. He has Ullman talk, but Jack's not paying attention. This small trick helps on so many levels. First, it adds to the realism. I believe Mr. Ullman would go on endlessly about the hotel to employees and anyone else who listen, and I believe the employees would often drift into their own thoughts. But second, King is still giving us the information despite it being half the text. Third, King is taking us into Jack's own thoughts, what he's really thinking about while Ullman drove on. And what he's thinking about is his family, his alcoholism, his writing, his son. Notice, when I gave the story of the book, I spent as much time on what happened with the Torrances before page one of this book as I did with what happened at the Overlook. This family dynamic makes The Shining a human story rather than a ghost story, and it's something that could have been tedious if told in full flashback chapters, or, God forbid, if the story was told in a completely linear fashion with us seeing the Torrances fall apart in chapter after chapter before they get to the hotel. But the intermingling of the past and the present as King does, and as our own minds often will, 
thinking about the past instead of paying attention to the present, we get a lot of backstory and characterization in a way that doesn't feel labored or that it's slowing down the progress of the book. Of course, when King started to write the book, he thought every character would be dead by the last page. In his vision, Jack, Danny, and Wendy were all set to die at the Overlook. But, as with Salem's Lot, King's desire to give his characters a triumphant ending rather than a bleak, pessimistic one won out. More, King is able to write this book in such a way that, like Salem's Lot before it, I was reading compulsively. Yeah, I had to read this book in a certain amount of time so I could have it read and release this books and nachos on time, and to know the book before I review the movies on Now Playing. But The Shining was so much damn fun to read, I ended well ahead of schedule because I'd stay up late at night reading. I'd read during lunches at work. I'd even read while at the drive-thru at Starbucks on mornings when they were especially slow. At one point, King writes, The Overlook was having one hell of a good time. I was too. It's aided by prose that combines character stream of consciousness with music lyrics and quotes from other literature. It's obvious that King was heavily inspired to write this tale by Edgar Allan Poe's Mask of the Red Death, and the author doesn't hide it. He has quotes in this book from Poe's story, as well as references to Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House, Bradbury, and others. Rather than just use his literary predecessors as inspiration, King invokes them by name to add their flavor to his story. If you haven't read these stories, and I've read Mask but not Hill House, they add flavor. But if you haven't read them, you can still enjoy King's story. That King can write a horror novel that defines a generation, but has a body count of one, is proof of how impressive his ability to spin a yarn is. The horror can come from the family and not from the casualties. Which isn't to say King's writing is perfect. There is something set up early in the novel that plays a major part at the end of the book, and King couldn't have made it more obvious if he wrote that there were large neon arrows in the scene. This comes back later when Tony tells Danny, you will remember what your father forgot. Maybe Jack forgot, but none of the constant readers have. Almost as obvious as King's symbolism of wasps. I read a few of those quotes here, but there are several passages in The Shining that hits the reader over the head with how King views the wasps as a metaphor for the hotel. I'd have preferred a bit more subtlety. King should have let readers discuss, deconstruct, and analyze. Let the reader determine if the wasps were intended to be so symbolic, or if there was another meaning. In this way, King's writing feels aimed at a slightly younger, or at least less literate, readership. Perhaps by shooting slightly low, King was able to connect with a mass of people who normally wouldn't read books that didn't hold their hands as much. Perhaps this hand-holding is why I saw King proliferate throughout my junior high and high school years, but not so much when I started reaching academia in college and adulthood. It's a cynical view, but don't take it as a ding on the author or on his fans. I'm just observing how The Shining seems pre-annotated for the readers. But my complaints about this book are minor. With The Shining, Stephen King has elevated, giving us a fine ghost story, but a great story about addiction, the cycle of abuse, and the disillusion of the nuclear family. To make these big points, and to do so in an entertaining way, it's what made King rich and famous. Years from now, when I have completed this Books and Nachos series, looking at all of King's readily available writings, I have a feeling The Shining will stand atop all the others as my favorite Stephen King novel. 
King feels like it's a curse to be labeled the author of The Shining, but there are few mass-market books I've read in my life that are better, so he should be damn proud of this achievement. And clearly, The Shining does influence his other works. In it, there are two direct ties. First, another stuttering boy is featured, and then Dick Halloran makes an appearance in a flashback sequence in that book as well. The room number 217 shows up in It, and we'll return to 217, the number, a couple other times, such as in Apt Pupil. Other ties to King's work abound in The Shining. Wendy grew up with a dead sibling, a theme we've already seen in Salem's Lot and will be repeated often in King's fiction. And while King wrote the story while living in Boulder, and it's one of the few stories King's written not set in Maine, it's about a hotel on a snowy mountain in a blustery storm. As such, it could just as well have taken place in the Pine Tree State. King's description of snowstorms, icy roads, and high winds apply just as well to a good nor'easter as they do to the peaks of the Rocky Mountains, and he will write of many Maine winters in books to come. And more, this novel really continues the theme of the white versus the black that I mentioned first and really went into detail on with my review of Salem's Lot. I'm not going to go into all that detail again here. I suggest you listen to that podcast if you want to know about the white versus the black. But in short, if you listen to that podcast, you know that in the 70s and 80s, King didn't like to discuss his religious beliefs very much. He'd refuse to say if he believes in God but he would say he believes in absolute good, the white, and absolute evil, the black. And these are forces beyond the human plane. He called out the powers of Salem's lot as the black in dialogue and prose. In The Shining, it's not as overt, but it's clearly a continuation of that theme. If indeed there is an inhuman monster at the root of the Overlook's evils, as we are led to believe, it could be a cousin to Barlow's master from Salem's lot. And in Salem's Lot, King also wrote about the white, the powers of good that stand against the black. And as I said in that review, King doesn't take to the idea of evil children. King sees kids either as victims or as agents on the side of the white, and here Danny is both. Being given the shining, he acts as a good kid, fighting against the black forces of the Overlook. But he's also the victim who has to use his powers of the white to save his own life. But... Let's revisit that white and black conversation again, shall we? Perhaps in early 2015 with my review of The Stand. But yet the biggest note that King has come to embrace The Shining's legacy is that this very year, 2013, when I'm releasing this podcast, Dr. Sleep has been released. It's an idea that many readers had asked King about. King said jokingly in the 80s that he wondered what would happen if Danny from The Shining met up with Charlie from Firestarter and the two got married and went to live in Salem's lot. But while King never found himself really wondering about Charlie later in life, over the years, King has said in interviews that he would think, quote, Now Danny's 20, or now he's 25. I wonder if he's drinking like his father. Finally, I decided, okay, why don't I use that in a story and just revisit that whole issue? Like father, like son, end quote. I intentionally have read nothing about Dr. Sleep before writing this review. I don't want any foreknowledge of Dr. Sleep to influence my thoughts on The Shining, and I'll be discussing Dr. Sleep in great detail on its own. But I couldn't help but know it's about grown-up Danny Torrance, and as such, I did find myself paying special attention to any comments about Danny's future in this book. King writes that Danny is young enough that he could still heal emotionally from his father's actions. One doctor seeing Danny says, quote, 
If life doesn't cause him to retract his antennae, I think he'll be quite a man, end quote. Will that be the case? And at one point, Wendy thinks, quote, Someday her child would be a stranger to her, and she would be strange to him, but not as strange as her own mother had become to her. Please don't let it be that way, God. Let him grow up and still love his mother, end quote. Will he? Will she still even be alive? But my biggest question is back to the cycle of violence. I always pictured Danny as the good guy, but seeing how Jack Torrance takes after his father, is Danny doomed to repeat? Nature, nurture, or psychic bond, can the son escape every trace of the violence of his father? I can't say that before I knew King was writing Dr. Sleep that I felt a need to see Danny's story continue beyond the Overlook Hotel. But after this reading and seeing all the father-son relations, I'm anxious to see if King continues these themes at all. He may not. It's been 36 years since The Shining was first released, and King is a very different man and a different author than he was back then. But before we move on to Dr. Sleep, there is one more bit of The Shining released in between a prequel or a prologue. The Shining was originally written as a five-act play, and the novel is still broken into five parts. But King wrote a prologue called Before the Play and an epilogue after the play to be included in the novel. These were both cut, and the epilogue seems forever lost to rumor in history. But the prologue before the play was published first in 1982 in Whispers magazine as a five-part story. When King was promoting his 1997 TV miniseries for The Shining, King allowed the prologue to be reprinted in TV Guide, though the first portion of the prologue was omitted. It's never been included with any of King's works, but it is readily available to anyone willing to Google. Each scene in the prologue reads like a standalone short story, only a few pages long, but each introduces events and elements that would play a major part later in the book. The first part, the portion not included in the shorter version, is set in 1922, but really covers the Overlook's history up to that point. It tells of Bob T. Watson, who built the hotel. We see that from the start, the hotel seemed haunted. During construction, the man's eldest son died on the grounds, and the day the hotel opened, a congressman choked to death on a stake, and a woman thought she saw something in the lobby. Like Jack, Watson and his son, and then later owner Paris, were enchanted by the hotel. It sets that up and explains why Watson's grandson would still be working there. Watson, the eldest, was never rueful about how the hotel had robbed him of family and fortune. He just wanted to stay with the hotel, even if it meant being a janitor, as did his only surviving son. Apparently, this did extend to his grandson. This first section also would have been the first mention of Poe's Mask of the Red Death, bringing the story up by name, something the rest of the novel fails to do. The second part of the prologue, set in 1929, tells of money-digging Lottie Kilgallen, staying at the Overlook with her new husband, Harold M. Pillsbury, on their honeymoon. Lottie is a deceptive woman who helped dupe Harold into marrying her because he was rich and controllable. But Lottie has nightmares, dreams of which set up future attacks by the fire hose, the topiary animals, and even the elevator, which, driven by a dead man, gives Lottie a ride all the way down to hell itself. It also spells out very clearly the ending of the book, which needed no further clarification than what King had already put on it. Having it in this prologue, in fact, makes me think King wants you to know the end, the same as you know Jack will pick up a mallet and attack his son. The third story takes place in 1945 and tells a lot more details about Horace Derwent and his lead accountant and spurned lover, 
Lewis Toner, who Harry forced to wear a dog costume to the grand reopening of the Overlook. While this spells out Derwent as a self-centered sociopath before the book even begins, it fails to really shed any new light on the Overlook itself, other than to imply Derwent did indeed try to distance himself from the hotel, but the hotel kept tying itself back to him. The fourth story is the only one not set at the Overlook, but rather in New Hampshire in 1953. It tells of one of the instances when Mark Torrance abused his son Jackie. In this story, Mark chased Jack into the boy's treehouse, threw him out of the treehouse, and broke his arm. Lying on the ground, Jackie thinks, What you'll see is what you'll be. It's a little too on the nose for my taste, and a bit too obvious a statement that Jack Torrance, as a very young boy, had the insight that someday he would break his own son's arm in a drunken rage. And that's about all the story gives. The final tale, set in 1958, tells of the mafia hit that took place in the presidential suite. It's the least and shortest of the five stories, with nothing to offer but a slight bit of action and gore. Had all these stories been printed in the prologue, they would have been worthless. Almost every detail in them is told later in the novel. Worse, it would have been a lot of backstory for the Torrances and the Overlook before we know why we care about any of it. It's the type of data dump I didn't like in King Salem's Lot. Cutting this prologue was a great editorial decision to make The Shining the great, involving storytelling experience that it is. Had the book been published with this prologue, I wonder how many readers would have given up before chapter one. But that said, as someone who loved The Shining the way it was published, I eagerly ate up these other stories and the small bit of illumination they added to the Overlook's history. Had these stories been published later in 1978's Night Shift, as the two short stories that tied into Salem's Lot were, I'd have found it a genius tie-in. But I see why even so many years after The Shining was published, and despite having a collector's reprinting as Salem's Lot did, this prologue was never restored, reportedly due to King's own insistence of its absence. But again, it is on the internet if you search for it, but other than the most rabid Shining fans, it's barely worth searching for. I'd be far more curious what the lost epilogue for The Shining would have contained. But if the stories connected to Salem's Lot are any indication, King's storytelling instincts wouldn't have answered the questions that this book left me with. In some interviews, King hints that the material in After the Play was used, though, as the final scenes in Stephen King's 1997 TV miniseries adaptation of The Shining. And you'll be able to hear my thoughts on those scenes in the NowPlayingPodcast.com review next week. But without After the Play being released, we're left with the true epilogue to this book being Dr. Sleep. And I'm anxious to follow up on the story of Danny Torrance, so I'm going to drop out of going in order of publication for a while, and next week, I'll be back with my thoughts on King's sequel to The Shining. In the meantime, I'd really love to hear your thoughts on The Shining, as well as on this Books and Nachos series. Several of you have reached out to me on Facebook, in our forums, or on Twitter to chat about these books and to show support for these reviews, but please, keep them coming. Again, these aren't quick podcasts to do. I never thought a podcast could take longer to make than an episode of Now Playing, but these mammoth books and nachos actually do. So if you're enjoying them, please let me know. Links to the Books and Nachos forums can be found on the homepage of booksandnachos.com. And tomorrow... Stuart, Jacob, and I will be back at NowPlayingPodcast.com to review Stanley Kubrick's movie adaptation of this King book. 
It's pretty well known that fans of this book, and as I mentioned, King himself, have harsh things to say about Kubrick's film, and those who discovered The Shining through Kubrick seem less enamored with the source material. And of course, King himself stepped up to have his vision of The Shining made into the TV movie miniseries in 1997. Do I agree with King and his criticisms of Kubrick? Find out tomorrow at nowplayingpodcast.com. Thank you again, Constant Listener, for joining me in this review. I will talk to you next week. In the meantime, as you do your holiday shopping, remember to make a stop and support your local bookstore. Thank you for listening to Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, and you can catch back episodes at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2013, all rights reserved. The Arthur has said the Arthur, Arthur, King Arthur.